Welcome to the Adelaide Living Podcast, where we share the stories of the city. Adelaide is a city shaped by stories. Those of the traditional owners of the land and of our increasingly diverse community. Each story is unique, but what links them is the place of Adelaide, a city designed for life. So join us as we uncover inspiring stories of the people of Adelaide. Rob Brookman, AM, is Executive Director of the celebrated Adelaide Festival, and they effectively grew up in tandem. As a child, he experienced its debut, and he's dedicated much of his arts career to helping build the festival into a creative force. In the year of its 60th anniversary, we look back at triumphs and scandals that shaped the Adelaide Festival. But first, Rob reminds us how far Adelaide has come how we've transformed from an outpost of the British Empire into an exhilarating festival hub with an international sphere of influence. When I first started working in the arts in the early 70s, pretty much every cultural institution was headed up by an English man. There there were very few Australians who had aspired to those positions or been given the the, the development to believe that they could aspire to those positions. So our new opera company, our theatre company, our dance company, they were all run by English men. Even our first festival was run by John Bishop, wasn't it? Who was English by birth and Adelaide was his adoptive city. And very, you know, the beginnings of the festival were utterly inspired by Edinburgh and very, very self-consciously modelled and indeed Sir Ian Hunter, who was the artistic advisor to the Adelaide Festival in 60 and 62, had been the director of the Edinburgh Festival. He was the person that the, the new board sought out as, a, as an inspiration. So I hadn't realised we were modelled on the Edinburgh Festival. I actually just, just remember the excitement of driving down King William Street and seeing some windows lit with green neon light was pretty exciting. But more importantly, when did we develop our own wings? When, when did we, if we, if we were born as a, as a clone of Edinburgh yeah. in the colonies, where did, we, where did we start to take flight? I would say it was a very, it was a very Dunstan thing. And, and uh, Dunstan, of course, was... He was Premier of South Australia. In the 70s? In the 70s. I'm not going to be able to give you chapter and verse on the date. 70s is perfect. Yeah. But uh, he was in an interesting position at the end of the 72 festival, which had run into a good deal of strife financially. And the festivals had, you know, the odd uh, accident with money over its years. So Some se- spectacular, as I recall. Some Utterly spectacular. Mm-hmm. So in 72, the festival was really on its knees and the Board of Governors were having to ask the government whether they would very kindly be of assistance in seeing them through. And, you know, this was really in the early days of arts funding that the government's involvement in supporting the festival at that time was much lower than it is these days. So Dunstan had a wonderful lever with the board he felt that the festival really needed to find an identity that was more separate to that of of Britain and less self-consciously modelled on something like Edinburgh. So he was interested in a person who would take it to a different place. And 
at the same time, he was recruiting for uh, someone to be general manager of the Adelaide Festival Centre and stumbled across Anthony Steele, who at that time was programming the South Bank in London. And Anthony pretty much put it to him and said, uh, if you want me to come and be general manager of the Adelaide Festival Centre, then offer me the job as artistic director of the Adelaide Festival as well and you'll have your man. Because while he was interested in running uh, a building like the Festival Centre, he was probably more interested in programming. And Don was therefore in a position to pretty much say to the festival, I've got a new artistic director for you and you'd better take him on. <laughs> and and you, of course, came in because that was your entree, wasn't it? You'd finished university and you came in sort pretty, of pretty junioring short, to him, is yeah, that right? Yeah, pr- pretty shortly thereafter. Um, so Anthony, I think, would have come out to Adelaide in about 73 and uh, I joined the festival centre and the, and the festival, which was then sort of merged uh, within administratively in late 74. And, you know, it was Anthony who delivered the shock of the new, if you like, to the festival and uh, really pushed the idea that the identity of the festival could be one where people would be looking at the latest cultural trends from all over, but in such a way that it would be not just interesting to our population to see what was going on from elsewhere, but where people from elsewhere would pay attention. Because that's one of the things that you want to do with the festival, isn't it, is that it reflects what's going on around the world and also demonstrates what's what's coming out from Australia. It's, it's a two-way mirror in a sense, Ab- is it not? Absolutely. Um, so Australian work is... Know, pivotal within the program, but it is it's placing international work within an Australian context, and it's playing placing Australian work within an international context, if you like. So we've managed to demonstrate through the festival to the world what we're capable of. I think with some of the things like um, Mabarata in particular, I think, and some others, you've said it turned theatre, it turned dance on its head around the world. Yeah, I think one of the things that I feel most passionately about in relation to the festival is uh, the fact that it has created a, a series of watershed moments that have been deeply influential, um, particularly in our country. So, uh, you know, you could see the ripple effect of Peter Brook's work from both the seasons that he did in 1980 and 1988 through into the theatre making that the young and emerging and mid-career theatre directors were, were making. And, you know, that the, the, the creative process is one of absorbing influence and then transforming it into something original um, and authentic of, uh, and, and very much of oneself. But you need the, that richness of influence, I suppose. I mean, there are a few artists who sort of seem to spring fully formed out of absolutely nowhere, but the vast majority you know, collect influences like magpies for years and years and then gradually that unique voice of their own begins to emerge. And That's how you get diamonds, isn't it? You compress yeah. layers and layers yeah. and then you form the, the diamond under pressure. Yeah. So uh, that opportunity to bring things that, that you can see the influence of in future years is a really important thing the festival can do. So with all of this happening away throughout the festival. How did that really, when did that really start to permeate into Adelaide's culture instead of something that was a fascinating 
a side or supplementary um, part of us? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, I think the 70s were when we began to see the shape of what we have now emerge. And I think it's the point where there was some kind of attention to the, the two-way flow that goes on between that which is brought in and that which is already here. But, but then, you know, the other thing that has to be remembered is that up until the 70s, there was really virtually no professional performing arts scene in Adelaide at all. Uh, you had the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, a fantastic group of professional musicians, but the theatre company, it was a project of the Elizabethan Theatre Trust. It didn't really find its true form until 1972. The State Opera Company was created in the 70s. The Australian Dance Theatre got going in the late 60s but sort of became much more professionalised in the 70s. So, you know, that was the time when there was a real flowering and a lot of that was, again, down to, to Dunstan's investment. So how much of it was Dunstan, how much of it was the city? I mean, if, you, if you're trying to look at could this same festival have happened in another city? Did it have to have the, the political, the social landscape that Adelaide did to make it flower, as you say, the way it did? Did it almost mm. need the connectivity of, of a small city to make it work? Yeah, look, I, I would say ripe environment, but you need the catalysts to then uh, to then make the, the possibility turn into something. I, I think, yeah, I think individuals can have an incredible influence sometimes where something simply wouldn't happen at all or alternatively where what they do is they advance the rate of project of, of progress really significantly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things happen faster and they happen earlier. And at that point, you know, from Adelaide's point of view, I suppose what happened was we got ahead of the game nationally. The, the fact that it was the, in truth, not quite the first multi-arts festival in Australia because the, uh, the festival in Perth actually beat us to the punch by a couple of years. But it's fair to say that the first Perth festivals were very, very small and tentative affairs strictly confined to the campus of the University of Western Australia. So Adelaide already had that thing of it's the city that's got an international festival before anyone else did really. And then when it took that big leap in the 70s, it, it transformed beyond simply being, you know, the first and the most interesting in Australia to being one of the most interesting in the world. How have you managed to retain that position? Because there would be people jostling, festivals jostling for that for that crown. Yeah, look, and I, for I, something turning sixty, how do you do it? I think it's fair to say that you know the progress of the festival has not simply been one long, perfect, uninterrupted ascent. Oh, really? <laughs> I could have sworn that it would have been just a smooth linear line. Yeah, yeah. you know there have been plenty of stumbles along the way, and. You know, there have, there have probably been periods in which we we sort of dropped back to the pack, if you like, and we weren't necessarily particularly distinguished relative to some of the other festivals in Australia and around the world. But, it, it, you know, in terms of keeping it fresh and, and in terms of refinding that mojo if it's lost at particular times, um, it's really down to two things. One is that you need the... The, the right board, you need you need the environment in which a terrific artistic director or in our case currently brace of artistic directors 
uh, can make their work. So, you know, you need those two things. You, you can have a terrific artistic director and if they're not given the opportunity and the support and the resources, then they will simply become frustrated people and not deliver to the potential. On the other hand, you can have the best governance in the world and if you don't have great artistic direction, then you're nothing. So governance and, and artistic and, and reputation? Because is it not the festival's reputation that is attractive to the artistic directors as well as the, the, the acts themselves? Sure. It's, it's like any virtuous circle. If you've, if you've got the reputation of being great, then you, you're more attractive to great people. And that's, that includes both the, the artistic directors and the artists. So, you know, from our point of view, the longevity of the festival and its reputation are great door openers when it comes to inviting people to um, to come to our country. Do you have people tapping you on the shoulder and saying, just to let you know I'm available? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a, a certainly a steady stream of proposals we receive, although it's fair to say that the vast majority of the programs are usually assembled more through the pursuit of the artistic directors than by people, you know, putting their hand up. Now, they are the ones who not only keep the festival fresh, but they keep it questioning and challenging. How much sometimes is that questioning and challenging program a headache for the board? Oh, it's created all kinds of trouble <laughs> over, over time. But then... I think that provoking not for the sake of provocation but because that is the nature of, of art that questions, it, it's, it's part of the role. And, and I think most of the boards understand that at least by the time they leave the board if they didn't understand when they first got onto it. So now we've got a little collection of, of you know, banner posters from the advertiser that hang in the office um, and the ones that you collect and that you keep are always the ones that have that are sort of sporting outrage of one form or another so you know I think back to the sort of insane controversy spawned by uh, Robin Archer putting an accordion in the hands of the Virgin Mary on the poster of her festival I, I must say I was just absolutely gobsmacked by the sort of hail of condemnation that came down upon her for daring to um, take a light-hearted view in some way of religious iconography. Hail it's, is the right word. Yeah. You have to be. When was that? Just remind us. Yeah, not chapter and verse. Uh, well, Robin did the 98 and 2000 festivals and I cannot quite tell you which but one had the accordion. But it was between those. So yeah. we've grown up a lot. Since then? Yeah. And how has the festival helped us grow up? Um, look, I, I think that apart from anything else, uh, things, things happen that initially people may question and be surprised about and, and in some cases object to violently and then afterwards they go, oh, that wasn't so bad after all. We lived. Yeah. The sun came up the next morning. You know, in some cases, we even we even got the law changed. I, I think to uh, the festival that I directed in '92, we brought a fantastic uh, French street company called Ilotopie, and they had a number of different projects that they worked on. But one in particular was uh, this project in which four of them stripped down to g-strings and then painted themselves with this kind of incredibly thick and bright 
paint of primary colours. So there was one red person, one green person, one blue person, one yellow person. And then they just walked through the streets. And it's kind of a quite extraordinary thing to look at. And it predated any of those, you know, buskers who paint themselves silver and pretend to be statues. And there's something about the image of, you know, this absolutely red human being and this absolutely blue human being walking through Rundle Mall very slowly or wherever. And I was hurtling along as was my want from the festival centre to the Elder Hall to go to a lunchtime concert and saw a bunch of squad cars pulled over on North Terrace with lights flashing and so on. I thought, oh, hello, something's going on here. And then I saw one of our bright red people. I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and sure enough, the police were in the process of arresting the French street theatre group that we had brought in. So I, you know, jumped out of the car and went over. And at this, at this point, the policeman was trying to grab the female member of the group and one of the male members of the group was, you know, really kind of outraged that um, the policeman was laying his hands on her and so he grabbed the policeman by the shoulder, of course, in the process putting a massive blue handprint onto the, the soldier's uniform, which was did not go down well. And, you know, before you knew it, there was just this kind of frenzy of policemen and red handprints and yellow handprints and blue handprints all over uniform. And I'm saying, please, everybody stop this. I'm the artistic director of the festival. These people have been invited to our country. Sergeant, can just please stand down for a moment. And he said to me, get out of the way, mate, otherwise you're in the back of the paddy wagon too. And they were all bundled into the back of paddy wagons. So I chased them to um, police headquarters down on Angus Street, got out of the car and <laughs> the, the sergeant walked up to me, like, you know, pretty much chested me and said, if you walk over that yellow line, mate, you are going into a cell. Not the blue line, the red line, the yellow line. Whichever it was. And I said, look, this is just going to turn into a public relations disaster for the South Australian Police Force. I don't want to see that happen. And he said, back off, get out of here. You know, okay. Ran in next door and said, can I please speak to the media department of the police force? Something really bad is going down here. Eventually managed to find the right person. But by that time, they'd been charged. And due process had to be followed. It did turn into a scandal. The French ambassador flew from Canberra, sat with the group in solidarity at a performance by a French dance company the following night after they'd been bailed. The great thing about it is, long story short, is that the law in South Australia was changed as a result and you could go nude for art in Adelaide thanks to Illotopia and the Adelaide Festival. And thanks to the artistic director. So, so it's not just boardroom meetings and budgets and programming, is it? No. Clearly no, you have to be multi-skilled, as you learnt from your early days with Anthony Steele. I think you were finding one of the biggest birds in town, oh, a certain act. Yeah, like I, I, my eyes were like saucers sometimes when I worked on the first festival. Um, you know, I was incredibly naive and had no idea, I suppose, of uh, the demands or, you know, temperament I think is an overused word in terms of artists because most artists are... They're not temperamental per se, but they have many interesting <laughs> demands. And in the case of Hans Werner Henzer, who was a major German composer who we brought to the festival, his was for a particularly large bed because he preferred to share it with a number of people. 
So you, so you learnt from a from your very first stint of how to be flexible, fast, and problem solve all the way. Absolutely. You know, when I delivered a rental car to um, the amazing South African actors, John Carney and Winston Natsona, who did Athel Forgard's plays, Cesar Bansia's Dead and the Island and won Tony Awards for it. So I went round to their hotel and, and, you know, brought this hire car because they'd said they really, you know, we'd said, you don't need one in Adelaide, you can walk around. But it was it was in the contract. So mm. brought the car around and I just got hell from them. Uh, they said, you know, you expect us to drive this. It's, we don't like this car. It's a horrible car. So I said, okay, well, what kind of a car do you want? And they said, well, what kind of a car do you have? I said, well, we can get all kinds, you know, that's and, – and so eventually I said, would you like to car down to the car rental company with me and we can pick one out for you, <laughs> which they did. And they were so happy as they drove out of this place in a bright yellow mini mo. That's style. That's style. It may not be comfortable, but who cares? It's got style. And moving from that, could you perhaps share with us your thoughts on the arts offerings in Adelaide right now and also perhaps where we're headed? I I think that we, put it this way, we probably punch above the level of support that is offered, but we also significantly live off reputation. Uh, And just at the moment... um, you know, we've got a premier who is marvellously supportive towards the arts in terms of um, the way in which he um, comes along and attends things. He uh, is incredibly supportive in terms of fundraising efforts and so on. But he has arrived at a time when historically uh, the support that the state provides to the arts has, has sunk to a significant low. And it's proving to be very difficult to to shift that. And at the moment, given the problems that we have with funding to the Australia Council as well, uh, the, the richness and the diversity of art being made in, in Adelaide is under really severe threat and I think has diminished uh, over, the, over the last decade. So I, I, I think it's terribly important that, you know, we don't, just say, well, you know, we've got some beautiful venues and we've got a great festival that happens every year and the Fringe is incredible and well, Adelaide's great. We can't, um, we can't live in an event culture and regard ourselves as a cultured city. There has to be an incredible bed of artists and work that, um, that is from here and that needs support. And, we, you know, we can't call ourselves a creative community. Community. We, we can call ourselves a, a consuming community. And I think it's, it's one of the things that Adelaide can be good at. How uh, can we do it better? Because how, how can we assess the importance of culture? And, and equally, is there any way we can measure that as, 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 a, as a precursor to saying, look, this is how we measure it? This is what we need to fund mm. it. There's been some great work done on this um, out of Flinders University by um, Julian Merrick and uh, Tali Barnett uh, recently, and uh, there's a really significant paper that was released called, I think, uh, Valuing Culture, which sought to do exactly that because I think we've been caught in the trap of economic impact as being a measure of the importance of the arts 
for too long. When I number first, of programs sold, number of bums on seats. Absolutely. It's all, you know, show us the numbers. KPIs should be made of numbers. They can't be made of anything else. When I first started working in the arts in the 70s, no one had, the, word, the term KPI hadn't been invented. It wasn't about numbers. It was about, it was about the importance of culture to the community and the way in which education is important to the community or the way in which health is important to the community. You know, the arts are not a pathway to somewhere else. They are an end in themselves. And I believe that that is the way in which we can continue to transform ourselves as a, as a community and make ourselves an extremely interesting and potentially extraordinary place because that's something that other cities don't do, don't take seriously. We, so with not... all the focus on well-being, the focus on culture as sense of uh, our sense of who we are, how we learn, how mm. we develop, that sort of comes in an event diagram, would it not, with that well-being? A- absolutely, absolutely. But it is, it is something that ultimately will then drive the economy. But I'm, I think that a lot of people have trouble joining up the dots between the two. And, and I go back to, you know, the, the visionary that Dunstan was and every now and again people say, oh, you know, everyone talks about Dunstan in the 70s. Well, that's because this was an extraordinary person who did extraordinary things. And, you know, a couple of the things that he pushed amongst many, and, you know, this is putting aside the incredible work that he did in social justice and, and making us a better community to live in, mm. two things that he loved and that he really wanted to see transformed were the arts and the other one was food. And, you know, when I talked about being a dull, flat, white bread city, I mean, white bread describes the cuisine of the day, you know, British stodge, basically, with a few Mediterranean influences coming in from post-war migration. But really, food was something that was basically to just keep you going. It was fuel. Yep. And I think he's significantly responsible for the food culture of Adelaide and maybe because food is something that everybody does one way or another. The people have developed, a, you know, a greater pride about the gastronomic side of what Adelaide does, the fresh produce and... Tasting of tasting events, tasting Australia, yeah. tasting everything. Uh, because food's for everybody and it's easy and I'm not... I'm not knocking it. I love it. <laughs> Can I ask about your sense of the value of, of culture? Uh, I gather that you feel it's important to society not just to develop our thinking but also to challenge our identity. Yeah, I, I think that you should come out of, um, you know, theatres and concert halls and galleries buzzing with with ideas and whether they're ideas about the way in which that art was constructed and the perfection of it or the beauty of it, its pure, you know, aesthetic qualities or whether it's about the, the social ideas, the political ideas that, have, that are contained within the sort of the debate that might exist within those works, that's where it should, that's where it should take you. Every piece of art should in some way be advancing a dialogue within, whether it's within people themselves, whether it's between just a couple of people or whether it spills out into the community in a wider way. There are so many times when I guess when I've seen a fantastic work of art, when I've felt 
I could never have understood the ideas within this piece by reading, uh, you know, a well-constructed essay about it, that the impact that a piece of performance uh, or a piece of visual art or a piece of music can have on you in delivering the punch of that idea is beyond, uh, I think, often the kind of the rationale of a dialectic that someone might set up. Culture, culture, so to speak, it doesn't just work on the impact on the individual, as you said. How have you seen how it brings community together? In so many different ways. I mean, one moment, I guess one of those galvanising moments that I would say, well, you know, here's an example of of what I've just been talking about, was we brought an extraordinary company in 92 uh, from South Africa doing a piece called Sarafina, which was uh, about the the apartheid regime in South Africa. And it was performed to a significant degree by children. And it dealt with a moment in South African history when the school children uh, basically went on strike uh, against the regime, the, the, the black school children. It was at the particular point where the South African government was voting to, to determine whether it would go to a referendum on apartheid. And the news came through halfway through the performance, the opening performance of this show. And at the end of the performance, uh, you know, for 2,000 people in the festival theatre, the leader of the company was able to come out on stage and say, the vote has just been taken and our country's moving away from apartheid. And that sort of sense of confluence of the amazing impact of the performance and then the real world entering into it, it was um, not only sort of devastating in an emotional sense, but I guess the sense of elation for people, the sense of the world turning, you know, and, and feeling the earth turn was quite remarkable. And I love those, I love those moments when whether it's politics or social issues coincide with art and and people can feel like there's a sort of a tipping point that they've been that they've been part of clearly the festival has had its share of landmark moments through its 60 years history could you perhaps tell us about your experience with former the former artistic director George Lassells the earl of Harwood and queen's cousin and of course his wife Patricia who i believe you recall as being wickedly hilarious to go to to George and Patricia, you know, I've got to say when, you know, that the George's appointment was announced in 86, so I guess I was 32 at the time. So, you know, still full of it, basically. Already administrator of the festival and um, had been for four years by then, surprisingly. And I just thought, wow, the board have appointed the Queen's cousin to run the festival in our bicentennial year and I was kind of... What were they thinking? Yeah, I was, I was kind of horrified um, and in so doing. For, uh, fortunately, I didn't express that opinion to anyone because I would have just paraded my own ignorance in relation to Lord Harwood's accomplishments. You know, I had not really clocked that um, he had been the, the, the driving force behind the English National Opera uh, that his depth of musical knowledge was utterly extraordinary, that the relationships that he had with um, with great musicians, great opera singers from around the world, his knowledge of 
theatre, dance and so on were utterly amazing and, you know, there's a very good reason why he directed the Leeds Festival and the Edinburgh Festival. And, and in the end he, uh, he kind of chucked any of my residual uh, objections out the window by uh, saying to me when we, when we first met, you know, well, I've heard some good things about you and you, you, you seem good, so would you like to be the associate director and would you like to put together the Australian end of the program? <laughs> went, okay. So uh, I think you said he'd researched you even more than you'd researched ab- him. Absolutely. I felt like a complete nincompoop, really. Uh, we didn't need to because you hadn't mentioned it to anyone. <laughs> so we won't tell anyone now. <laughs> that's right. But I then had the pre- pleasure of, of, of meeting Patricia, who is, was an Australian and their relationship was had been scandalous in that uh, they met while George was still married um, and, you know, members of the royal family did not divorce and George did and he was pretty much excommunicated from the palace for many, many years as a result of that and Patricia was, I'm sure, I imagine, uh, regarded significantly askance for, for, for many years. So... You know, they'd lived through this period of of public scandal and opprobrium uh, and had come out on the other side with the most incredibly generous spirits and yet, um, you know, if, if you got Patricia on a good day and <laughs> she decided to get stuck in on any particular subject, um, she had the most incredibly sharp, razor-sharp uh, sense of humour and... They they left, I think, a sort of an indelible impression mm. on, on us, certainly on me. As as they all have. Uh, so And they all became lifelong friends. But I believe that you have two particular old friends who are also excellent motivational tools. You refer to your old friends' white-knuckle terror and blind optimism. Yeah. How have they served you? <laughs> Extremely well. Hopefully the white-knuckle terror doesn't um, show itself too much because, you know, when you wind up in a leadership role, your job is to remain outwardly calm and um, to look as though you're reasonably in control of what's going on and capable of dealing whatever comes up. So you, you do, but it doesn't mean that you're not absolutely churning uh, inside and frequently with a festival because it makes demands of you and it's one of the exciting things about it is, you know, find a way to make this happen, this thing that hasn't happened before. It's your canvas. Yeah. go and, You make it happen. Go and find a place to do it. Go and assemble the forces that you need. Um, try this thing that on the surface of it looks as though um, it's really most unlikely to succeed that is inevitably exhilarating on one level but also terrifying. But I do find great motivation in not wanting to screw up. Uh, yes. Like most people. But I, but I find that that, you know, anxiety about things like that can be crippling and can actually, you know, block you. I find actually it acts as an amazing spur You've successfully pursued your artistic ambitions from Adelaide, based in Adelaide. Was was that a conscious choice? Did you ever perhaps feel that there might have been a need to leave? Um, it's kind of a, a, a bit of orneriness there. From pretty early on, 
because you connect with a lot of people from outside your own community, whether it's around the country or um, in other parts of the world. And, and I'd, I would just get really sick of people from other places saying, you're going to have to move. You're never going to be able to stay in a, in, a, in a city like Adelaide and pursue what you want to do. You know, you've got a bit of talent. You've got to get out. And I just get, no, I, I actually would prefer to stay here. Thanks very much. I really, um, I love this city in many ways. It also irritates and frustrates me enormously. But if you, if you boil it down, there is something about sense of place it is somehow deep home for me. Perhaps that's partly due to the fact that my family have been remarkably sedentary and very few of our mob who came out from Scotland in the, um, in the late 30s of the 19th century have ever struck out of South Australia or Adelaide. So, you know, part of it I think was simply a kind of a stodgy Adelaide response to say, I like it here, I want to stay. And another bit was... Well, recognition of place is a very honest and real thing. Yeah. But, but another part was also, you know, it was slightly up you. I will, I will pursue this and I'll do it here where I want to and I want to make the thing that's here that I'm working on good rather than going somewhere else and trying to make someone else's thing mm. good. Because yes. this is, I suppose, the festival and... The arts community within Adelaide for me have felt it's it's felt like my thing. It's felt like the thing that I wanted to pursue one way or another and be part of and to assist in, in whatever way I can. I think you've assisted and contributed in an enormous way. This is your last festival. Yeah. Well, as a as an organizer, I as look forward organizer, to my next yeah, as consumer. Consumer, absolutely. How how does that feel, or have you not had a chance to think about is, is there a potential gaping void? What, what next for Rob Brookman? I had to finish with the festival once before, back in 92, after I'd sort of worked my way from a bit like from, you know, the janitor's room up to directing the festival. So this, this has always felt like kind of a beautiful coda to that and, and I've known that it was going to have a, a limited arc to it. So I guess there's not uh, there's there's not so much a sense of um, it's all over because I've been there before, um, and in terms of what's next, almost a dress rehearsal, <laughs> pretty much. In terms of what's next, I don't know. I've been doing this for forty five years, and I've got a big section of garden to build at that communal farm, and I'll probably uh, probably undertake a few individual uh, producing projects here and there. Spawn anything new? Because, I mean, one thing I should have mentioned is, of course, the festival Mothership spawned Come Out Youth Festival, the Fringe, Writers Week and WOMAD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I love that fact that, that those other festivals have become uh, so important in their own right. And, you know, in the case of Writers Week, it stayed, you know, within the, the ambit of, of the Mothership, although it very much runs its own race within the festival. But that with uh, Wayne Adelaide and the Fringe and Come Out, they're completely different organisations these days. Uh, they've got their own their own setups and they've built their own separate identities that are incredibly important for, for this city. So no, there's, no, no, there's nothing like that on the horizon, I can assure you. 
one thing that I kind of swore that I would do is just not decide what I would do until I'd actually got out. But I, I can't imagine just gardening. Well, I know I can imagine just gardening, but it probably won't happen. Rob, thank you. That has been wonderful. Thank you. Great pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adelaide Living Podcast, which is brought to you by the City of Adelaide. Discover more stories about people, places and projects having a meaningful impact on our city by subscribing to this podcast or visiting the Adelaide Living website at living.cityofadelaide.com.au.